On a first listen of the opening movement of Philip Glass's Violin Concerto, there is to be found a deeply unsettling detail in the bass line. In a very short space of time, the bass line rocks from a sense of closure to a sense of tension, with one note tucked in right at the end of the phrase in the bass line. It is a note that drives us inexorably back into the repeat of the main musical idea. The cumulative effect of that musical idea as it's repeated over and over again is darkly beautiful. It is a musical idea that is ill at ease with itself, ever so slightly out of alignment with the world around it. It is music that never settles. The subsequent return of that note isn't so much something that is anticipated, it's feared. It's something that makes me feel uncomfortable when I hear it. And yet, it's also necessary to hear it to keep things moving along. The Glass Violin Concerto is one of three works on the Manchester Collective's first album. They released an EP last year, which is well worth a listen if you haven't already, and was reviewed on the Thoroughly Good blog. This new album, entitled Company, was released in late March 2021, and it features a Manchester Collective commission by composer Edmund Finnis called The Centre Is Everywhere, and an old favourite of mine, Schoenberg's Verklärte Nacht. Find out more about the reasons for its distinctive sound quality later in this podcast, in which Manchester Collective's Raki Singh and Adam Zabo feature. Their conversation, as with many of the conversations in this ongoing Thoroughly Good podcast series, often triggers my own thinking, as well as helps me feel more connected with the musical world, which I have increasingly over the past few months felt isolated from due to the pandemic. With lockdown restrictions now easing in the UK, the South Bank Centre announced it will reopen on the 19th of May with live events back on the 28th. That sense of isolation is now coming to an end. But what will the arts world experience be like when activities cautiously return? And as we move into a phase when the memories of the first lockdown are subject to personal histories, how will we review or sum up the classical music world's digital response to isolated creativity that was forced upon it? Will the creative lessons learned during a year of rapid content production development have a lasting impact when the doors to live events open again? Quite apart from the logistics, what will the arts world need to respond to, creatively speaking? And will it be able to? Manchester Collective seems like one of the best arts organisations to explore those questions with. We started with music director Raki and inevitably what she could see out of her nearest window. Um, well, I'm actually in Reykjavik, so I can see some very beautiful wooden houses. I'm, kind of, I'm self-isolating in an Airbnb in the centre, um, and I'm due to go into a studio here next week so it's kind of a um a sort of uh covid imposed residency really so i <laughs> which has been quite nice <laughs> although not so good for the bank balance but that's fine <laughs> uh so you, you're self-isolating in uh Reykjavik because you've yeah. traveled there presumably how long yeah. do you have to do that for so it's i have my next test on friday so you're supposed to do five or six days okay 
then you can be a normal human being. And then you. <laughs> Uh, what are you doing in your uh, self isolation? What? How are you keeping yourself occupied? Because it would drive well, me. Well, I actually uh, so I brought my yoga mat and I can walk around and of course I've got my violin and plenty of things to practice and I downloaded some books and I could do some listening. So actually, it's all the things I kind of just want to do when I'm at home anyway. Yeah, and I'm. I'm. I've got a few meetings and I've got some articles to write. So. Um, yeah, and cooking and drinking coffee. And... <laughs> I like that you list drinking coffee as a thing to do. <laughs> yeah, I'll do when that. Sort of, when you, I'm not allowed into any shops or um, or into any restaurants. So actually that includes, I mean, I haven't been really having takeaway coffee anyway, but when you're walking out and about. Well, and you I are allowed, so you are allowed to go outside? I'm allowed to go outside. I'm allowed to go for walks. Okay. But I can't go into any shops or anything. So. COVID isolation strikes me as the sort of um, th- those those holidays where, not that I'm suggesting this is a holiday, by the way, uh, but those those holidays where people aspire to not have any 3G coverage so that they can be yeah. completely disconnected. That That's kind of how COVID self-isolation sounds now. I realise that there is, for some people who are infected, a high risk of it being quite unpleasant. So I should probably stop making jokes about it. Um, we've covered what's outside your window. Uh, Mr. Yes. Zabo, what's what's outside your nearest window, please, sir? Uh, well, I'm actually in at the Manchester Collective office today, which is a, a bit of a rare treat at the moment. My, my wife is a member of the BBC, Phil, and is making recordings at our house today. And when she heard that I was doing interviews for most of the day, politely asked me to leave. Um, so I am, yeah. So I'm coming to work um, for, you know, this session. Is that and, is and that her today. making a judgment about her own playing, or the fact that you would interrupt her? No, it's it's her it's her um, making a judgment that the the BBC producers will be happier with the results if there's not an Australian, you know, <laughs> right. taking one to one meetings in muffled tones at the back of the second violins. <laughs> And I really like the um, idea that there's somebody at the BBC Philharmonic who said, for God's sake, don't let John Jacob in, in on this. We don't we don't want his voice on it. God, that would be terrible. Yeah, I like that idea. Um, uh, no, can we, can we just quite actually, can we comment on how lovely the Manchester Collective offices are? I mean, or is this just sort of something that you've arranged for the shot? No, no, you can yeah. comment. I'll give you the, the tour. Um, well, look at so, that. Yeah, so... That's uh, so. That's my nearest window, which kind of overlooks this um, kind of central area, which is usually very buzzy. But this this place in it's in Manchester. It's called the Sharp Project. So it used to be a factory where they made like washing machines and stuff. And it's now kind of uh, a sort of um, place for kind of creative businesses. So there's recording studios and um, it's kind of sound stages for filming. Um, and uh, and yeah, and us. Uh, and in normal times, do you have you found yourself collaborating with other organisations there, or is it just that you're all you know you're all part of the same sort of family? Does it Does yeah, that aspiration I mean, I, of collaboration work? That's what I mean. I I think it's I mean you know it's nice to be in a space where there are other human beings talking around. I mean you know practically speaking, the way that we sort of plan and devise work it's not often the case that we're like, ah, you know what would really help this program sing would be like a robotic VR, you know, (laughs) camera arm or, or, you know, whatever. Um, 
but I mean, certainly we've worked in the recording studio and we've, and, you know, we've kind of shot some stuff in some of the spaces. So yeah, it's, it's more that it's, um, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's, it's a sensible location and we can rehearse here sometimes if we need to. And, you know, I guess you've got to have your office somewhere. Um, Magister Collective's lockdown output has been um, characteristically distinctive from everybody else's. Uh, it strikes me that it's sort of also been true to your organisational values. That sounds terribly formal, doesn't it? But uh, you can tell the kind of meetings that I've had this morning. Uh, it, so, so what I've seen amongst other orchestras is that there's been a lot of output in the first lockdown, a lot of lockdown videos, uh, a lot of sort of pragmatic uh, responses to being silenced, as it were. Uh, it feels as though Manchester Collective has sort of taken a slightly longer term approach. Am I reading too much into this? Do you want to take that one, Raki? Yeah, I guess it's true. I mean, we, we were lucky we had an archive of our concerts and when the first one happened anyway. But yeah, it was very much, I remember we had a particular meeting where um, Adam turned up and, and said, look, we, we should take the long term. You know, we don't need to just keep churning things out just for the sake of it, because we've, we've never done that. And our values are about producing things that we really are proud of and that we really care about. So there's no reason to change the values. You just have to change your medium a little bit. And so that's been a real period of exploration. Actually, we only did our very first live stream uh, two weeks ago. Um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was interesting to have not even done a live stream yet. But even when we did that, you know, it gave us time to think about how we wanted to do it. We weren't entirely in control of the situation because it wasn't our own venues. But um, we still managed to bring people in to help us make it feel as us as possible. What were the, what were the kinds of conversations that you were having i mean was it sort of uh my assumption is that that for some organizations who were perhaps less nimble in pivoting that it was a bit panicked or that there were some sort of blocks in their thinking uh that people didn't quite know what to do for the best i i'm wondering whether i my assumption is that wasn't the case here that that there were sort of quite energized conversations and thoughts that you're having i think for us i mean in a way it's not a it's it, it's sort of not even a COVID discussion. You know, this is this is sort of a problem that we have to solve. That not, I mean, that we the sector have to solve, not that we personally have to solve. Um, although I guess we're a part of it. That that kind of predates the pandemic, but it's just that like when the kind of you know the social and the economic and the cultural context of the country that we're in is changing it seems insane to me that the art that you're making wouldn't change. I mean, that just seems like a nonsense, basically. And so, you know, this is obviously, you know, the pandemic has been that idea writ large is that there are, you know, like fundamentally uh, we, we can't be out on the road, we can't be touring, the work has to change. But I mean, I think that's the that's been the basic tenet for us through this time is that, you know, when the world changes, the the art that you're making has to change as well. And... And in a way, I think we've been pretty uninterested in just like queuing up to like, oh, cool. Well, when can we do our first, you know, sort of whatever Beethoven's Drink Quartet concert live again? And that'll be so great when everything goes back to normal. And actually, you know, if you look at like, I don't know, we're about to have this installation start touring called Dark Days Luminous Nights. I mean, that's a work which 
you know, like pushed us in every conceivable way, really. I mean, we've never done anything even remotely similar to that before. It's an exhibition of photographs. You know, it's a half-hour film that we made. It's a, it's a um, sound installation. You know, it's a dance thing and a visual art thing and a music thing. And, and it's this sort of really interesting kind of confluence of, in, of influences that really would never have... It's not even that it wouldn't have been possible, but it would never have occurred to us to make that kind of work had we not been in the situation that we'd been in. And so... Not that it's like, yay, pandemic, it's been so good. But, but I do think that, in a way, it has, like, forced our hands creatively. And that's not a bad thing, actually. And I think we're just at the very, very beginning of actually figuring out how we can flex our muscles and be working in some of these different ways. You know, it's been, I mean, I don't know, Rax, how's it felt for you in terms of, like, I guess on some level it's been very artistically frustrating time, but I think it's also been quite fruitful in other ways. Yeah, it's been interesting to have the time to sort of let let things um, develop and germinate a little bit. Also, for just following on from what you're saying, I think there are people who a lot more a lot more organisations are are being more creative in how they present things. You know, the the quality and the um, the ideas behind the videos, which are going up now, are far better than they were six months. You know, mm-hmm. people are thinking about concepts and. How are we going to deliver this? Oh, it doesn't have to be just uh, cameras in a concert hall. You know, people are using different spaces and that is really great to see. That is really good for the sector um, in terms of, um, yeah, I, I feel like, you know, once, I guess, once you know you can pay the bills, um, it's actually been really nice to have the extra time and sometimes not physically racing around so much. I think that's one thing I've noticed is that when you physically move around, like, emotionally move around as well and so to actually just be settled has helped get into kind of some different emotional states and then that of course affects your work and the way you feel about things and and what you want to express through what you're doing so I think what the classical music sector sometimes forgets is that we are we're supposed to sort of deliver something about how we're feeling in the moment and there are so many things that are pre-planned that people forget that it's kind of about the moment. And so even when you're planning, you have to keep that kind of vitality in mind and like, I don't know, be in touch with those deep emotions. We're a bit afraid to express ourselves sometimes. And that that's sort of evident in the education system. Oh, sorry. <laughs> My cute computer just wanted to express itself. <laughs> wow. Oh, hang on. <laughs> We're keeping it in. Something before We're so keeping it in. We're so. I mean, that's just so you, isn't it, really? <laughs> but you know, it's okay to to express yourself within all of these different details: how you look, how you speak, how you play, what you play, where you play. Um, and I think that's sort of coming through a little bit more now. Do you both think that this sort of shift in mindset? Because I do, I do recognise what you mean, Raki. That that in the space of a year. Uh, arts organisations have gone from, we should probably put stuff online. I mean, people have been putting stuff online, obviously, but there's been a rapid sort of take-up because organisations have had to. Uh, and then within a very short space of time, you've seen quality and um, and vision adapt in order to exploit different things. So you've seen quite a quite a swift development phase, which perhaps you weren't seeing before. I wonder whether you both feel as though this will remain when venues open again 
or do you think some organisations will revert? I suspect that you won't revert because you're basically doing the same as you were before and this has just given you impetus. It'll be really interesting. I was just thinking about this the other day that um, it'd be a real shame if everybody just sort of goes backwards and be like, oh, okay, well, we got through that. That was a bit of an effort. Mm. Like, this is actually a regeneration of our sector um, and we need, we should hold on to that. Uh, I don't know, Adam, what do, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess, like, even if COVID, you know, becomes more of a kind of manageable, you know, public health thing and we can all get back to concert halls, you know, in the summer or in the autumn, uh, I, I guess it it still feels like there are other parts of our society that have changed that are, you know, kind of public health related. I mean, for me, I think this, you know, the pandemic has like really driven home the fact that, you know, that these like crown jewel sort of palaces of culture are not like equal places actually, and that and that actually it's a lot. There's a lot less friction of like watching someone's Facebook video than it is to like buying a ticket to the Barbican and going along to an LSO concert. And, you know, so I guess that's kind of simmering away in the background. And then also, I mean, I I know that the Arts Council is just one funder, but they're an important funder. And actually across lots of these funders, there are very, very serious discussions going on about, um, you know, about kind of like access, I guess, and and relevance and how important it is that the music that we make is like on some level related to, you know, the world that we live in. It's not, you know, kind of playing Beethoven symphonies in a vacuum, but that it's a really vital part of, you know, the lives of the audiences that kind of come along to hear the music. And so I guess even if, even if you know, we can get back to some kind of a business as sort of state, I really hope that those sort of, that those, you know, kind of imperatives to create work in maybe a slightly different way will stick around. And I think there will be, actually. Um, so so when you mention access and relevance, I'm uh, and I think that you probably mentioned it deliberately, uh, I'm reminded of the Arts Council strategy that was released. I can't remember what year it was now, because every year now blurs into another, uh, yeah. which was about access and relevance for the next 10 years. I wonder whether, whether you're thinking then that actually this... This has this situation has exposed the need for that, a greater need for that, and probably started up more conversations. Because when that strategy was published, the, 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 it felt as though the sector was sort of split in two. Some people were up in arms, going, "Oh my God, how dare they sort of talk about relevance?" Blah blah blah. Uh, and then there were others who were a good deal quieter. Then, I has has this period exposed that conversation and sort of given it. I'm mixing my metaphors now, giving it giving it legs. Yeah, I mean, I think I think the fact that no, like that that whether or not you know you live in kind of Salford or you live in South Kensington, like you haven't been able to go and see a concert, you know, like that has leveled the playing field to mm-hmm. some extent. And and I and you know, as Raku was saying before, I think it's given like us, I guess, like the creators, you know, the opportunity to kind of maybe like evaluate the sort of work that we're making. I mean, I think it is really changing. Like the, the, the sort of sector is changing, like the appointments that these big arts organisations are making are changing. You know, look at the new head of classical music at the South Bank, you know, Tokes, Dada, he's like, you know, he's young, like he's a black guy, which is already like, oh my God, sorry, are you like, not, not 
and and I guess his programming taste is also like far more broad than than mm. what you might normally expect from from someone in that position. Um, and so, and you know, he's one of many. I think so. We are seeing a sort of change. And as you say, I guess COVID has like it's forced us to make ten years of progress in one year because suddenly it's been like, oh my god, we really have to learn how to be production companies and how to make work yes. appealing well, online. It, it, it does you know. strike me, uh, maybe Racky, you will have a different view from this, but it does strike me that that uh, the orchestras now are. This may be a bit weird, but it does strike me that orchestras are now run by marketing people, which is great because actually the marketing people sort of know know what the finished product needs to be, whereas before. Um, there was a there was a distinct hierarchy in arts organisations, and it was artistic directorship, um, general management, and then all of the other people, the foot soldiers who who do all of the stuff. It feels like this period has shifted that. Again, I might be reading too much into it. They're such large organisations, aren't they? They're real juggernauts, um, and you know, over the course of a hundred years, they've really evolved. They've sort of developed certain habits, and of course, that that happens in programming. And um, yeah, there are many reasons why different things are programmed or not programmed. Um, but I, I suppose, like Adam was saying, like now all the concert halls are, are shut and everything is online, and that's immediately accessible to most people. Um, so it has sort of leveled the field, but it's I, in some ways I think orchestras are going to be the hardest things to change because they're the largest and the oldest. Um, but we've already seen a significant shift, um, and it'll be interesting to see whether that continues and how it continues. that we should really be talking about the thing that we're meant to be talking about which is a new album of it's not an album John it's a release of um, Edmund Finnis and Schoenbos for Klaternacht 
Anthony. Yeah, it can be an album. I mean, it's, yeah. it's sort of is an it, album, isn't it? Is it? I think I show my age if I call it an album. What do you call it? An album. Oh, well, oh. I, I mean, you call it a record. <laughs> oh, do you? How <laughs> very old school. I mean, you're young and hip, so therefore, let's call it an album. Uh, uh, I'll take my lead from you. How did this come about? Uh, it was actually born through um, through not being able to do live concerts, so we shifted our focus onto recording work. Um, so it's very much a product of its time. And uh, after the first one, we'd really enjoyed working with the string orchestra and um, we knew we wanted to record Edmund's piece because we love it. And, um, you know, it's not out there. It's it's the first recording of it. And it's a, such a special piece that it feels like justified to put it out in the world. Um, and so we started to build a record around that. What makes really. it special? What makes uh, Edmund's piece special? The centre of everywhere? Um I feel like he, you know, the way that he manipulates time and space through his writing, um, he has such a sensitive um, uh, way of, of dealing with sound and he really forces us to create new textures. I, I feel like the string orchestra um, becomes this a piece of lace. I find it very tactile and very textural and there's actually, there's nothing that I know that is like it. It's a real it's really remarkable work and it almost like I feel like influences of Schubert within the structure um, and almost like kind of um, massive organ chords and so it has all of these different influences but it's with it's in his distinctive Edmund Finnis voice which is like kind of water and light and it's sort of um, it really makes your ears dance. the other thing that is special about it is that like you know he's he wrote it for 12 solo string players and so in a way it's this kind of you know i mean it's kind of the most manchester collective piece or one of the most manchester collective pieces that we've played in that like there are these big you know kind of string orchestra-y sort of sounds and moments in it but but it's also kind of you know it's chamber music really you know everyone is a soloist and these lines you know in all of these different parts kind of you know, are always kind of undulating and, and sort of tumbling around each other, you know, different kind of moments, people kind of popping out of a texture. And then, I mean, the lace is a really lovely example. I've, I've not heard Racky said it before, but it's like, I think that's spot on, you know. Um, so, and we've really lived with it. I mean, we premiered it actually at the South Bank in 2019, I think. Um, and, and then we've gone on to tour it um, around the UK. And so recording it was quite sort of special. The sessions were in the summer and, um, yeah, it was all distanced, which, uh, I mean, is is sort of difficult, I think. Um, but in a way, 
we were pretty well set up to deal with those challenges because we've often kind of mucked around with sort of interesting physical setups in our performances. And like so, you know, I like your terminology. Yeah. Mucked around. Yeah. So, you know, the, I think, you know, the players were sort of, to some extent, kind of prepared to deal with those challenges. Um, and yeah, I, I think also, I mean, so the, there are three pieces on the record. It's the Ed Finnis piece, Schoenberg, um, Fekletenacht, and then Philip Glass, second string quartet company, you know, string orchestra arrangement. Um, and actually the distancing, I think, um, in in hindsight, you know, 2020 hindsight, was pretty handy in terms of the recording process because what it meant is that we could um, close mic instruments individually and we had really incredible control in kind of post-production with our recording engineers and producers. And so what that means is that we've just, we've ended up with with the sort of set of recordings that have a very particular kind of sound to them, I think. The Schoenberg in particular, when I heard that, when I heard that, that sounded a lot drier and a lot closer than I've heard it before. Um, I always imagine the Schoenberg as a as an epic string piece and one that that maybe string players approach with sort of trepidation uh, because it's because of its intensity. Is that is that the case, Raki, or is it just another string yeah, piece? Yeah, yeah, I think. Um... I mean, I've played it a lot before anyway. So in my head, I'm like, oh, it'll be fine. I was getting closer to the recording. I was like, oh my God, what are we doing? <laughs> um, but then it's like, I, it just constantly you have to remind yourself, just don't be fearful. It's okay. Like, And I know there's lots of recordings of this piece out there. So you do have to also ask like, why do we need to record it? But actually it felt like such a good matching to Ed's work it's sort of there are bits of the Schoenberg that really sort of glisten in the same way that Ed's pieces piece does and when we mentioned to him that we wanted to pair it with like with that he was really pleased with it because that was one of the first pieces that he really got into when he was studying composition so it felt like a natural fit and also I suppose the, many of the people who will buy our, our records are people who wouldn't go and buy a, a Schoenberg um, the Clareton Aff record anyway so hopefully it will be sort of reaching ears that have never come across it before um, so 
uh, yeah, we, we managed to justify it to ourselves. But it, yeah, it's quite, I mean, recording is a hellish process anyway. Is it? I mean, not always, but a piece like that. You, yeah, you it's hard. Like, it's just really hard music. Yeah. yeah. And also, I, I um, sort of, knowing the school reasonably well, I assume that there aren't really very many easy edit points. It is through composed is I that mean, right yeah, so it's well, one complete thing in its sections so if there was things that we needed we knew we had to work in sort of sectional chunks um yeah and I but i mean you know in, in 2021 i think you could you know you can edit in like one timpani note if you need to <laughs> like i mean actually well, not that that let's, not like, kind of let's not like let's not like let light in on magic adam you know let's yeah i uh, said something I mean, in one of our recent sessions like yeah, you know, our sound guys are so good. You just turn up and play one note and then they build the rest. <laughs> it's interesting what you said about it being dry, uh, John. I mean, in a way, one of the really interesting parts of the process was that um, was that the the production for that piece, for Schoenberg, is, is not the same throughout the piece, which I think is quite unusual in the classical world. And so one of the things that we were really working on with the producers was... Um, you know, when it opens, you know, you have that kind of drone in the cello. And we tried to make that as claustrophobic and as close and as terrifying as you possibly could. The perspective of the listener as the piece opens is the perspective of a microphone that's like two centimetres away mm -hmm. from that second cello kind of, you know, pulse thing. Um, and, and then kind of conversely, you know, exactly halfway through the piece, you have this kind of incredible moment where, you know, the first cello plays this, kind of redemptive melody you know um in kind of d major it's like super noble and glorious and and that material by contrast we wanted it to sound like you know kind of the kingdom of heaven opening up like it's kind of release and forgiveness and transcendence and so actually that moment it's an entirely different set of microphones that are recording at that moment the mm -hmm. the treatment of the of the recording itself is is entirely different at that moment there's a there's a it's so so the, the musical material has basically informed very different kinds of production at different moments in, in the piece. And so we had a lot of fun with that. I mean, I'm sure some people will hate it and probably some people will really love it. But it meant that even, you know, near the end, there's a bit that, you know, when we were in, when we were kind of doing the production stuff, um, you know, Brendan and I were sort of thinking, God, you know, the, what he's writing here, it really sounds like kind of old, worldy kind of Vienna sort of like early sort of gramophone-y kind of material. And so so in those moments, actually, the sound, the way that we technically treat the sound is suddenly much more kind of veiled and you can kind of create a sense of that nostalgia in in the production as well as in the musical material. So I don't know. I mean, it, it's been a big experiment for us putting this together, but it's been really interesting to take a much more dynamic approach to the production than just like setting the mics up forgetting about it and then the players play the piece from beginning to end and you get the experience that you basically get if you're sitting in, you know, kind of row C yeah, you see, with you're, this you're, recording in, in explaining you're that, you're rocketing you're, around the room, you know. Yeah, in explaining that, you're exposing, uh, inadvertently exposing all of the assumptions I have about the recording process, which is brilliant um, because that's exactly how I thought you did it. You just set up microphones and then basically played and left the room and had other people do it. Um, that's that's fascinating and exciting. It looks like it's exciting. What did uh, what did you learn from the process, Raki? Well, actually.
actually Adam does the all the production work and I kind of come in and listen to different edits and stuff. So I'm listening to the mixes along the way. Usually I say something like, I'm too quiet here. Right. <laughs> right. So there's a bit of an ego thing then. There's a there's an ego thing to, to cover over. It's like sometimes um it's weird, yeah, because Adam sits in the hall and often we play and he's like, in the hall it, you know, my line does soar, but sometimes with a microphone, when there's a lot going on, also think about the microphones are cl- very close to the cellos. So with a the violin, they're further away. So we do have to sort of balance things sometimes. Um, and I guess because we're all used to balancing more as as we play a concert, and it never feels in concert that there's that kind of um, balancing issue. So sometimes, I mean, even, you know, we, we do it quite detailed, like, okay, actually, maybe we can bring out the second viola here a little bit, because it's a really interesting line. So it's not just me, okay? <laughs> um, but yeah, so I'm sort of listening along the way to the mixes. Um, I think with the Philip Glass, there was one, maybe it was the opening, we were sort of wondering if there's there's a very sort of plain, distinct um, first violin line, and we were sort of talking about, can we put that in a different space and stuff? So I have input, but Adam's actually the one who is there in the um, in the room with Brendan, sort of doing it in the most detail. What did you learn uh, for the, what, what did you learn for the process? Well, I was going to say, oh, sorry, was that still Tarecki? Yes. Because I'm a stickly, yeah. yeah it may be a, it may be a series of follow up questions, but I do I do kind of think if I've asked a question, then it need it, it must be answered. What do I learn for the process? Well, actually, I think it's just you learn to it's a it's a sort of re education of the ears because um, in some ways you can I like to experiment with different ways of playing. So there's that that element of okay, maybe I can really push the extremes of sound. So there's the physical element of when you're playing and you're in the room, but then there's also listening to stuff because my partner also does production. So sometimes at home we experiment with things as well. So it's almost like the two things inform each other. The more that your ears start to hear and recognize and realize, the more that you can push different things on your instrument. So the two things sort of feed into one and hopefully it just makes for um, a more varied, even more interesting and more nuanced sound palette and that's like that's something that I'm constantly searching for anyway I think every piece that I play um you know I I sort of have this um almost like visualize a palette and colors and feelings and textures and so actually a lot of it becomes about everything apart from actually sound I try and relate the sound into something tactile or something else um so it just helps to kind of keep that evolving and because you never reach a point oh, oh it's done now um no. i I've, I've made all of the things i know how to do everything that i want and i know it's you know you're constantly evolving like we are changing as human beings our cells will all be different within a year or something so it's the same when you come to you know working artistically <laughs> 